Section 25 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 22. Literature, Part 2. The real strength, however, of The Age of Anne lay not in poetry, but in prose, and its prose still more than its poetry influenced the times that followed and is making its influence still felt in our own day there was a close alliance between politics and literature but politics took more than ever the form of party politics a great development had taken place in parties for not only was there the contest between whigs and tories and side by side with it the sister contest between low and high church but also there was a new aspect of the fight between the inns and the outs before the end of the reign it came to be understood that all the ministers should be of one party whilst the other was in opposition this gave a new almost a pecuniary interest to the contest if there was no augustus and no mycenas party spirit took their place the elections to the house of commons were all important and the question arose how were they to be influenced nowadays elections still being of importance more influence is due to the speeches of a few eminent men delivered in parliament or in public places and to the articles in the newspaper than to the views of candidates at each election but at the outset of queen anne's reign there were hardly any newspapers and no reporters nay more there was a law against reporting and valuable debates are in consequence wholly lost to history even in our own times the practice lasted that any member might exclude reporters by merely calling the speaker's attention to their presence members of parliament might be influenced by speeches those outside could be reached only by pamphlets able pens were therefore in demand for pamphlet writing and able men whether they liked it or not were compelled to declare for a party it is quite true that the best literary men protested against this compulsion swift made it a point in his satire of the contest between the big endians and the little endians addison humorously tells of the boy who asking his way was abused by one as a popish cur in asking for st anne's lane and cuffed for irreverence when he asked for anne's lane pope protests vehemently that the matters are not worth the fighting for for forms of government let fools contest whatever is best administered is best pamphlets were not a new invention our great milton during the middle stage of his life was a pamphleteer but the profusion with which pamphlets were poured forth was new and formed a marked character of the time we are so much accustomed to our daily papers that we sometimes wonder how people used to get on without them at athens of old they supplied the want by conversation in the market-place in queen anne's reign it was done partly by pamphlets partly by clubs and coffee-houses which were beginning to have considerable influence on political and social life the greatest pamphleteer probably the greatest genius of his time was jonathan swift he was of english extraction but born and educated in dublin at the age of twenty-one in the year of the revolution he entered the service of sir william temple a distant kinsman apparently in the capacity of secretary 
his position seems to have been unpleasant to him for he left it and took holy orders but he returned to it again and though not proud of the connection yet he edited temple's works when his patron died temple had retired from political life but was often consulted by william the third when the king wanted an opinion less interested than that of the partisans who surrounded him king william taught swift how to cut asparagus in the dutch fashion and offered him a coronetcy and a troop of horse it is said also that his name was entered in william's notebook for preferment but william died and swift's own conduct prevented preferment coming from the king's successor his first work was the tale of a tub a very ludicrous story of three brothers peter jack and martin who represent respectively the roman catholic the calvinist and the lutheran religion the story is told of their attempts to carry out their father's wishes in agreement and of their quarrel at the reformation the whole tendency of the book was to cast ridicule upon religion failing in his efforts for promotion swift changed his party and went over to the tories who received him with open arms but the queen would not consent to the wish of her ministers to make him a bishop ultimately he was appointed dean of st patrick's dublin he was naturally of a sour temper and the continued disappointments of his life made him very bitter he is a furious assailant sparing no insult to gain his point he seems to have had little heart his humour is wonderful such that no english writer has ever equalled it ireland alone could have produced it one could desire no addition to it but a little kindliness his pamphlets were indispensable to the historian of the reign of queen anne their name is legion one of them probably had greater influence than any other pamphlet ever had when the whigs were turned out of office the public opinion in england especially in the city was still strongly in favour of the prosecution of the war the effect of the conduct of the allies showing that the english people were paying the allies that they should be allowed to fight their battles for them was magical in turning the tide of opinion stocks fell when the whigs were turned out stocks were unaffected by the cessation of arms which showed that negotiations were genuine in king george's reign swift wrote the drapier's letters against a new government coinage and the result was that the coinage was withdrawn whilst swift became the darling of the irish people but of course swift's really greatest work is gulliver's travels which may be described as a satire upon humanity with contemporary allusions in the voyage to lilliput is represented the littleness of mankind as seen by beings of a larger growth in brobdingnag the absurdities of men are shown seen as it were through a magnifying glass then gulliver travels to other lands wherein learning and science are satirized and at length swift bursts forth into terrible descriptions of the yahoos which read like a savage attack on mankind swift outlived his genius and before his death sank into absolute idiocy the story is told how toward the end of his life he took up one of his own books and read good god what a genius i had when i wrote that book so swift expired a driveller and a show the following epitaph in st patrick's cathedral he composed for himself 
Hikyakit Jonathan Swift, STP. Ubi saiwa indignatio cor ulterius lacerari nequit, abi viator imitare si poteris. Swift was the great Tory pamphleteer, famous as the author of Gulliver. A writer on the Whig side was none other than the author of Robinson Crusoe. Daniel Defoe was born in 1661, the year after the Restoration. His real name was Foe, for though he had this strange fancy for prefixing de to his name, he was a true-born Englishman. His father was a London butcher, a Whig, and a dissenter, and he himself engaged in business as a hosier. But his strong sympathy with that extreme section of the Whig party which the dissenters formed soon drew him from commerce, in which he was unsuccessful, to literature. He had a very facile pen, and it often got him into trouble. But neither pillory nor imprisonment could restrain him from writing again. As a faithful and extreme Whig, he had joined Monmouth and taken refuge abroad after the defeat of Sedgemoor. He was a great friend of the glorious revolution, and during the reign of William was always ready to defend the king in his cause, even with respect to acts which were unpopular. His career as a pamphleteer may be said to have begun one year before the revolution, and to have ended about a year after the end of Queen Anne's reign. The two most famous of his pamphlets are The True-Born Englishman, which appeared in the former, and the shortest way with dissenters in the latter. The true-born Englishman is a poem in which Defoe defends King William. The verse is not melodious, and may be said in parts to descend to doggerel, but its sterling sense caused a very big sale. Considering the services that William and his Dutch soldiers had conferred upon England, even a true-born Englishman can forgive him for liking his old friends better than his new subjects. The former, at any rate, had been true to him. The foreigners have faithfully obeyed him, and none but Englishmen have e'er betrayed him. The writer vigorously maintains the principles of the revolution against the tyranny which James had wished to establish. The claims of kings should be broad, based upon their people's will. Titles are shadows, crowns are empty things. The good of subjects is the end of kings. The shortest way with dissenters was a pamphlet called forth by the occasional conformity bill. The church party, knowing that the queen was on their side, were anxious to persecute the dissenters until they were entirely rid of them. They wished legislation to run in the groove of Charles II's reign, not in that of William's. Defoe wrote under the guise of a churchman, and his shortest way was this, if one severe law were made and punctually executed, that whoever was found at a conventicle should be banished the nation and the preacher be hanged, we should soon see an end of the tale. The churchmen were delighted, and Defoe had to publish an explanation of his sarcasm, at which they were proportionately enraged. The result was the pillory and imprisonment. The pamphlet is really an argument in favor of complete toleration, for he also attacks his own friends the dissenters, because when they had the power they did not respect their opponents. Now, like the cock in the stable, they are quite willing to propose to the horses, 
let us all keep our legs quiet defoe's greatest work is of course robinson crusoe he was nearly sixty when he wrote it it is founded upon the adventures of alexander selkirk a seaman who had been marooned upon the island of juan fernandez that is to say put on shore by his captain and left there on pretense that he had committed some great crime the adventures of robinson crusoe his shipwreck his life upon the island his attempts to provide himself with the common necessaries of life his meeting with friday the boat too big to launch and ultimately the escape have delighted many generations of readers young as well as old written in an exceedingly simple style it has all the air of a real narrative but the most famous whig of the time and one whose life is closely mixed up with its history is joseph addison he was educated at the charter house which was then and indeed until late years a london school but has now been moved into the country a modern novelist himself educated at the same school writes with great pride of addison as the head boy at the charter house addison distinguished himself at school and went thence to oxford where he obtained a fellowship at magdalen college he had a great reputation for latin scholarship and especially for latin verses he also tried english verses and some of them arresting the attention of lord somers that enlightened nobleman procured addison a pension wherewith he travelled over france and italy he stayed a long time in france and the influence of a close acquaintance with french literature can be plainly traced in addison's style on king william's death the pension ceased and he returned to england he published an account of his travels which was not successful and for some years addison lived in poor but dignified and contented retirement in lodgings in the haymarket up two pairs of stairs when the battle of blenheim was fought its glory was sung by many poetasters in miserable verses which seemed to the ministers to mar it godolphin the prime minister did not know to whom to turn a whig nobleman suggested an application to addison on condition that all due respect be shown in making it the chancellor of the exchequer was sent as a deputation to addison who consented to write and when the chancellor came again the poem was completed as far as the following passage but o oh, my muse what numbers wilt thou find to sing the furious troops in battle joined methinks i hear the drums tumultuous sound the victors shouts and dying groans confound the dreadful burst of cannon rend the skies and all the thunder of the battle rise twas then great marlborough's mighty soul was proved that in the shock of charging hosts unmoved amidst confusion horror and despair examined all the dreadful scenes of war in peaceful thought the field of death surveyed two fainting squadrons sent the timely aid inspired repulsed battalions to engage and taught the doubtful battle where to rage so when an angel by divine command with rising tempests shakes a guilty land such as of late o'er pale britannia passed calm and serene he drives the furious blast and pleased the almighty's orders to perform rides in the whirlwind and directs the storm 
this simile carried the minister away with enthusiasm and the same feeling was quickly spread through the country when the whole poem called the campaign was published all the critics allow that the merit of the rest of the poem is by no means equal to that of this passage and that its great praise is that it recognizes the truth that in a modern battle the general does not engage hand in hand with the enemy and slay thousands with his own sword but is the directing mind of the whole by this poem addison's career was made he was appointed in turn commissioner of appeals secretary to legation at hanover under secretary of state secretary for ireland and ultimately three years after the accession of king george i secretary of state he married the countess of warwick to whose son he had formerly been tutor and lived at holland house which has been for many generations the haunt of a brilliant literary society the character of addison has made him almost the model of a literary man he had only one weakness inability to resist the temptation of wine and that was perhaps the fault of his age rather than of himself he was humane genial modest and in the best sense of the word religious the wits of his day used to call him a parson in a tie wig the layman's wig as we might say a clergyman in a black tie indeed the benevolent morality of his writings and their earnest christianity have probably had more effect for good than many sermons pope quarrelled with addison and inserted in one of his poems the following magnificent declamation against him peace to all such but were there one whose fires true genius kindles and fair fame inspires blessed with each talent and each art to please and born to write converse and live with ease should such a man too fond to rule alone bear like the turk no brother near the throne view him with scornful yet with jealous eyes and hate for arts which caused himself to rise damn with faint praise assent with civil leer and without sneering teach the rest to sneer willing to wound and yet afraid to strike just hint a fault and hesitate dislike alike reserved to blame or to commend a timorous foe and a suspicious friend dreading e'en fools by flatterers besieged and so obliging that he ne'er obliged like cato give his little senate laws and sit attentive to his own applause while wits and templars every sentence raise and wonder with a foolish face of praise who but must laugh if such a man there be who would not weep if atticus were he it is said that in the first draft addison's name stood without even the veil of atticus there can however be no doubt that this attack was very unfair and proceeded from the spiteful venom of the poet it is quite true that addison had a band of faithful admirers to one of whom we shall presently advert but jealousy was not addison's failing though it was pope's the allusion to cato would show that the passage was intended for addison even if there were no direct evidence cato was the name of addison's simple tragedy it was first acted in seventeen thirteen the month after the peace of utrecht was concluded a great deal of it had been written much earlier but the play was only recently finished pope then friendly to addison wrote a prologue to it 
and as addison surrendered all the profit of the performance to the actors they did their best to make it a success it was a time when party feeling ran very high the whigs applauded every passage in praise of liberty and the tories not to be outdone applauded also marlborough's application to be made captain-general for life being fresh in men's memories lord bolingbroke made a capital hit by sending for the chief actor between the acts and presenting him with a purse of fifty pounds for defending the cause of liberty so well against a perpetual dictator the saying went round the tory benches that the whigs meant to make as good a present when they could accompany it with as good a speech the play is constructed after french models and is certainly neither admired nor read in the present day it is too frigid but a few lines from it shall pass as the current coin of everyday quotation a fellow-worker on the same side and intimately connected with addison was mr richard steele they were educated at the same school and were contemporaries and friends at oxford but whilst addison was steady and distinguished himself steele was idle at length no longer able to bear the restraints of oxford life he ran away and enlisted as a private in the blues later he obtained a cornetcy and we find him afterwards a captain in the fusiliers steele's name like swift's was down in william's notebook for promotion but william's death destroyed the value of the entry it has been said of steele that he spent his life in sinning and repenting whilst notorious for his gaiety and the dissipation of his life he astonished the town by bringing out a little book called the christian hero which breathes the very spirit of piety when his party was in power places were found for him and at length sir richard steele was appointed editor of the gazette it occurred to him that the early information which he thus obtained might be made of use in a paper and that the dullness of news might be relieved by an occasional essay on some subject not political this idea took form in the tatler which when the whigs lost office and steele his place was merged afterwards in the more famous spectator in which steele received great assistance from addison the share which addison and steele had in this constitutes their chief claims upon the notice of posterity it was a small sheet published three times a week at the price of one penny containing a short essay on two of the pages and news on the others the subjects of the essays were infinitely varied now were criticism on manners now on the hoops worn by ladies on the absurd practice of their wearing patches on the face or on cherry-coloured ribbons these lighter subjects would be matched by reflections on westminster abbey on the exchange on the bank or by criticisms of decided value on milton's paradise lost and on the old ballad of chevy chase but a sort of thread of connection was given to the papers by the character of the spectator a quiet observer of men and manners and by the account of the club with its types of english society of the day the first sketch of which is due to steele the character of sir roger de coverley its leading member the representative of the english country gentleman was adopted and improved by addison who wrote all the later papers about him until steele again tried his hand placing the old knight in improper company and to prevent such a liberty being taken addison wrote a very touching account of his death 
the influence of the spectator has been very remarkable one may regard the modern newspaper and the modern magazine as its children for newspapers combine criticism with news magazines present essays without the news surely the most significant feature of modern literature is to be found in the merit and profusion of its periodicals that are poured forth daily weekly monthly from the press their transparent fault is that they are transitory but the gain is that knowledge which once remained upon the mountain height is now brought down to water the plain who shall measure their influence end of section twenty five recording by pamela nagami in encino california october second in the year of the plague twenty twenty end of the age of anne by edward ellis morris